Welcome back to the 180th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're flipping through some of the top stories, including how the Fed undermines prosperity, how we need to focus on free trade and limit the protectionism, and how Donald Trump and Jared Kushner missed a very important part of the Middle Eastern peace deal. And of course, we will end today with our Daily Delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So if you can't tell by the articles and their you know, semi-themes, this is going to be a little bit more of a libertarian or at least a, a free market kind of episode. So throw your comments down there on what you feel is the right market structure. I mean, obviously, you've never heard the end of the talking points that, oh, well, now we're a mixed economy. You've never heard the end of the talking points that the Fed should be out of everything, the government should be out of the economy from the libertarians, some more, uh, you know, Austrian or maybe even Viennan-style uh, economics. So what do you think? What is the best economic system forward? Yes, if you want to put socialism down there or industry controlled by government, go ahead. I, let's be clear, my comments don't get crazy, So, and I will try to have a conversation 100% with everybody to hear out the point of view but if you get swamped or, you know, if you put something down there really pro-capitalist and you also get swamped, don't blame me. You know, a lot of people have passionate beliefs on this one. Speaking of people with passionate beliefs, let's jump to this first article that said, the headline reads, How the Fed Undermines Prosperity, and it comes from Mises.org. And yes, Mises Institute is a... Uh, Institution, yes, uh, institute, an institution that is very, very libertarian. So, and when I talk about uh, people being passionate about this, they definitely fall into this category. And when I first read the title, I was like, okay, yes, I, I've heard some of this talking point before. And I, for the most part, agree with a lot of the points that they're making here, which is the, the government getting involved and even having a central bank that can actually plan how much inflation or how much of the national securities are going to be out on the market, that is a lot of market manipulation by the government. And how the how we've gotten to this point where the Fed can directly control the inflation of the U.S. government, it, it doesn't, it's not lost on me. It's not that I don't understand some of the history. I don't have all the pieces, but it is shocking the fact that Americans, that one of the most capitalist nations on the earth, the one that is thrived on free markets since basically its inception, even though Hamilton was a little bit more protectionist, and we were protectionist for the first you know, 100 or maybe even 150 years of our, our lives, we were still relying on free trade, no doubt about that. And without the trade positions that we had going across the entire world, we definitely wouldn't have succeeded. We were protectionists in some of our you know, cottage industries, so there's no doubt about that. But the fact that the country that thrived under this you know, free market ideology has come to the point where we have basically a central bank telling us you know, what inflation will be or what inflation should be every single year is a little bit shocking to me. But, you know, it is what it is. So... Let's go to the article, and let's see what they have to say. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph so you can kind of get a brief idea of where they're going with this. Quote, the term roundabout is not normally associated with efficiency unless you're an economist. Yet roundabout methods, when applied to production, are the key to prosperity. 
So Eugene von Bohem Baderwerk, the great Austrian economist of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, provided examples illustrating how this idea works. And I'm going to just summarize this part because it is a bit of a, a long analogy. So think that you are a person who needs water. Every single day you need water. And you live a mile away from a well. So you go there, you cup your hands, and you get a little bit of a drink from this well. Well, at the end of the day, well, good pun there, at the end of the day, you realize, okay, it's really inefficient for me to keep coming here every few hours. You know, it's a mile away. That's, what, probably 20 minutes of walking that doesn't need to be done. I am going to uh, get a bucket of it and bring it home. Well, I don't have a bucket, so I'm going to have to create a bucket. And at the end of the day, if you're going to have to create that bucket, you're going to have to have the skills necessary to do it. Well, maybe you don't have those skills. Maybe you'll make a great bucket. And then when you go there, some of the water actually leaks through the bottom because you didn't create the bucket in the best way possible. So this is a risk, putting in time and effort in order to build that bucket, in order to take away from you farming, in order to get that water, you have to take a risk. You have to set aside time. And that time is not put towards being productive, towards food that will sustain you. So guess what? We make trade-offs. Instead, we do roundabout ways. Instead of risking making a crappy bucket and not also you know, producing food that will sustain you, you actually use that time to produce the food. You sell the surplus, and then you allow for somebody else who's specialized, who is probably going to make a better product so there's less risk involved. You're going to use either the corn or food that you make in order to trade with them, or in this case, if there's a fiat currency, you use the currency as a medium of exchange for the bucket. So that actually limits your amount of risk while also allowing you to still perform the tasks you know how to do properly. So these are roundabout methods of getting things done. Well, you know, the authors, they're trying to point out here, what they're trying to highlight is at the end of the day, the economic system is a whole bunch of people who, or at least nowadays, who have become specialized in one thing or another, who are good at one thing. I'm really, really, really good at, let's say, uh, sprinting for 100 meters. Now, I'm really good at sprinting for 100 meters. I don't know why I'm good at that, but in this theoretical world, I'm really good at that. And you're really, really good at sprinting a thousand meters. And guess what? We're doing a relay and there's a thousand meter sprint and there's a hundred meter sprint. So in that case, which one, which person are you going to put on the thousand meter and the hundred meter? Well, obviously if the other guy's good at a thousand meters, he's probably good at a hundred meters. But if I'm good at hundred meters, that doesn't mean I'm good at a thousand meters. So you're going to put him on a thousand meters and you're going to put me on a hundred meters. Those are our comparative advantages. I am good at something. Somebody else is good at something else. So let's not force allocation in the wrong way. Let's not directly intervene in that closed circuit economy and change the circumstances. Because at the end of the day, it, while that one person who can sprint the 1,000 meters, yes, he, he could sprint the 1,000 meters and the 100 meters. And guess what? You know, we could still do great. You know, I, if he's on either one, then we're going to do great in that particular section. But in order to fully utilize the resources that we have at our disposal, it'd be better to put him on 1,000 meters and then put me at 100 meters. The same thing works in 
the economy. People have comparative advantages. Some people are better bucket makers. They know how to cut down the wood. They know how to shape it, how to mill it. They have the materials, the access to do it. While other people, they have the scythes, the tractors in order to be farmers. They have become specialized. So guess what? We exchange the goods that we're specialized at making through fiat currencies or just direct trade And then there's an advantage to both of us. That farmer no longer has to take the risk of getting the materials and the skills involved in making a good bucket. And that bucket maker doesn't have to learn how to farm and actually produce his own food when he's really good at one particular thing. So this is where the Mises Institute really starts this article saying the direct involvement of the government in the market in any way, shape, or form is not a good thing. But there's another aspect that they go at the Fed at, which is the Fed is constantly saying, okay, at the end of the day, this is going to be the interest rate that we are going to propose. This is going to be the inflation rate that we're going to impose. They want a 2% inflation rate, ideally. They also have the power to directly influence interest rates in the market, depending on how much they are giving or loaning out the money to the banks at. So if they're loaning the money that they're printing or creating out to the banks at 2%, then that means that the banks are probably going to loan somewhere around 2% to make their money back so they can pay the money back on the loan that they took out from the Federal Reserve. Well, guess what's happening when you have an artificial number on the interest rate? What they argue here in the Mises Institute article is that you're actually giving false statistics. You're providing a false, uh, I don't want to say scenario, but you're making it appear as though the economy is operating in a particular way that it's not. Think about it this way. If people are spending a lot of money, and in order to keep up that spending, they need to take out loans. The bank only has a limited amount of funds. I mean, in theory, they could have unlimited funds, but they, you know, because it's all digital nowadays. But you know, in practical terms, they have a limited number of funds. So you have more people, more people who are spending more money chasing the limited amount of money that banks have. Well, that means that their supply of money is in really high demand. So guess what? They can charge a little bit more on those interest rates because people really want it. They're really desperate for it. So in order to get those loans, they're willing to pay a little bit more interest. Well, when people are saving and people aren't spending too much and banks want to make a little bit more money, they're like, oh my gosh, we need to make money. So many people are saving right now. Let's lower the interest rates because the demand for our money is low. Maybe we can encourage a few people to get out there while interest rates are a little bit lower in order to encourage them to start spending a little bit more. Well, when you have the Fed getting directly involved and actually changing the uh, interest rates or directly influencing them, then people, businesses who are, you know, assessing the market, they're like, oh, okay, interest rates are really low right now. That means people are saving. So we need to pour a little bit more of our money into our own construction of new plants or build out new infrastructure so we'll be ready when people are willing to spend a little bit more and aren't saving as much. Or maybe they're starting to buy stocks of other companies or build up their balance sheet so that they're you know, a little bit more protected and they don't necessarily have to worry or focus too much on consumer side goods because people aren't spending that much money anyway, so it's not like they could capitalize on that. And then when interest rates go up, they're like, okay, people are spending a lot of money. We need to focus on our consumer side goods because people are willing to spend a lot of money now, therefore there's a market there for us. Now, the Mises is 
argument is a little bit more nuanced than that, and I'm just giving a summary. The only issue I see with that is, and in an ideal world, yes, that's exactly how it should work. And the government, you know, I want them to be out of it as much as possible anyway, because the the argument that Mises gives is that, well, the boom-bust cycle that the government says it needs to jump in and fix is actually caused by more government involvement. But that one's a little bit more long-winded, uh, and I don't want to go into that as specifically. I would go suggest that you go read this article. There'll be a link in the description below the like and subscribe button down there. Um, but the point I was getting at is the one thing I don't necessarily agree with here is, well, they're saying that business owners aren't smart enough to see the difference. There, there's like, okay, they're looking directly at the interest rate, and if the interest rate is this, then the business company's like, oh, this is the exact uh, inference that they need to make. No, businesses are fully aware of how to operate in this world. They can look at consumer spending. They can look at the consumer price index to see where inflation is and how much extra money is being spent throughout the economy. They have plenty of complex metrics in order to determine where they need to be allocating their capital. Now, does that mean that every single business is going to handle this? No. The the big businesses are going to have the analytical teams, the financial experts in order to break all this down for them. And the mom and pop shops aren't going to be able to afford that. And they're probably going to get screwed by some of these policies who have basic understandings of economics or even who don't necessarily have basic understandings of economics, but are in a system where the people around them may have some basic understanding of economics, not enough to fully break everything down with a financial analyst. And then they pass those extra cost or that mentality on to the small business because they're work like I said, they're working around them. Maybe these other companies are starting to pull back on their supply chain uh, expenditures so that they don't necessarily get caught in a certain phase because they're looking at overall trends that they don't see the rest of. And then that affects the mom and pop shop. So that that's the only uh, I see where Mises is coming from, but that's the, the thing that I, I kind of disagree with, which is Companies can adapt to the new financial reality. But in an ideal world, yeah, yeah the Fed uh, needs to stop its meddling because it's also selling its securities out and buying up securities from Wall Street. And, okay, so that's actually another... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on a little bit of rant, but that's something else I thought about because when I was trying to select an article, you know, I was, I'm doing a few episodes ahead of time because I'm going out of town, and I was sitting in my bed, and I was reading this article, and then I said, okay... Normally, I kind of just accept I read and then I want to portray the argument. But where, where are the holes in this? And the one hole or one of the holes I found was the one I mentioned at the last point. But there's another interesting part that I thought of, which is why is it important to have inflation? Why does the government want to actually encourage to have like a 2% inflation? One, to make sure that people, you know, they keep spending. Because if there's inflation, then people are going to spend now in order to make sure that that dollar that they have does not lose value just sitting in a savings account. Well, who does that benefit? One, that benefits the government by having GDP. Uh, it, because now that we have less production and other countries buying our goods as much, a lot of the GDP, just like in China, is propped up by more consumer side spending and buying of different products and, and things like that. But also it benefits Wall Street because guess what? People, if they know inflation is at 2% and they want to outpace inflation, they can't just leave their money in their savings account. They're going to buy assets uh, that appreciate a little bit faster, a.k.a. the stock market. They're going to put them in vehicles to uh, move up the economic ladder. So it's just an interesting thought that I had, which I'm not saying they're working in collusion, but it, it does seem to benefit Wall Street a, a good amount. And I know this inflation shift 
is something that's been happening longer than Wall Street's true dominance of the political world, but uh, it was just interesting when I was thinking about it. All right, so let's jump to our second article that comes from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this one is, you know, honestly, they're still pretty libertarian. And by that, I mean like classical liberal closer to libertarian than conservative libertarian, even though they're pushing back against the new conservative protectionism. But uh, it was an interesting one when I went through this. Quote, the headline reads, not only to no single person, but to no council or senate, whatever. Yes, I know, the, the headline is kind of confusing. Let's just, let's just read the first paragraph so you understand what's going on here. Quote, after decades of allocating free trade, a growing share of Republicans want to return the party to the protectionism that once defined it. This sensibility, popularized by former President Donald Trump, echoes the economically unlearned fretting with which generations of interested politicians and lobbyists rationalize trade barriers. After prolifically introducing tariffs when in office, Trump has proposed a sweeping 10% tariff on imports. This, assuming steady import levels, would amount to roughly $300 billion in an annual tax on the American people. So, when we put on tariffs on other countries, guess what? Uh, at the end of the day, it becomes a little bit more expensive to import things, and then uh, you know other countries also put on tariffs on our goods that go there, so then our companies end up getting screwed because their products are a little bit more expensive in the other countries, and people that are, uh, you know, they really want certain products, but they don't want to spend too much money, they won't buy those products, so on and so forth. The, the reason I, I didn't want to go into the economics so much here, gave a brief overview, but I, I like the tack that this article is taking, which is it's going for economics, but it is also making a policy criticism directly that goes beyond economics, which is the protectionist mindset, the isolation mindset of the United States of America nowadays. And yes, I, I go back and forth between the isolationist view and the um, world police slash arbiter of uh, morality, democracy. I, I go back and forth on this one for sure. I, I still have a hard time. I'm still trying to figure it out myself when it comes to where I stand on those sort of things. But I definitely think it's a very important criticism to point out that, yes, not only Trump, but other Republicans have been pulling towards a more protectionist sort of market structure or uh, policy when it comes to how we interact on the world stage. And it's an important debate that we need to have. Like I pointed out in the last article, the American economy at one point was protectionist. When we were first a burgeoning nation, when we were first not as competitive as these other countries, of course we had tariffs in order to protect our home industries that were going to lead to a large amount of profits in the future. Hamilton understood this to some degree. But as things became a little bit, you know, I don't want to say less competitive, but as we basically came to dominance, then, okay, we open everything up, of course, because, hey, we're you know producing things at a really, really cheap rate. I mean, we have some of the best products. There's no need to actually put in any tariffs because, guess what? People want to buy our products anyway here in America and overseas because they're just the best and because of the way that we're trading and the processes and efficiencies we have here in the United States and in the industrial base, well, they're also cheaper and they're better. So, of course. 
But now that things are not cheaper and better, or they're becoming too expensive from America because we have a really, uh, how should I say this, a high-maintenance workforce? That, that's not fair. I'm not trying to say, oh, well, those workers, they're demanding too much. But what I'm saying is we are a first-world nation that has experienced lots of prosperity, and at the end of the day, people expect a certain level of living, and wages have gone up to a certain amount. Uh, productivity has also gone up with that, no doubt. But we have a certain level that people need to live at. We have minimum wages that force employers to pay certain things for their uh, employees, whether it be you know benefits also beyond minimum wage, but just a specific wage, which therefore causes a little bit of inflation, makes some things more expensive around the local area, but also it makes the product more expensive because guess what? You could probably have a Big Mac for $1 and McDonald's could still make the profits from the mass production of the food and the shipping out to those McDonald's places. And labor takes up a lot of that extra, what, I think it's an extra $3. So maybe that you could actually get a Big Mac for like $2. And then there's about a, a $2 difference with the wages that they have to pay if people could, didn't have to be paid minimum wage. But no, we have a certain standard of living. So, of course, we are going to have higher wages, therefore higher prices, so on and so forth. So we've been priced out of the market when you have other countries that come in, like Thailand, like India, like China, or you know, in Southern America, some countries are doing really well with farms, or you have uh, new industrial bases that will probably be opening up in Africa in the next uh, 10 to 25 years. So my point is, at the end of the day, we're being outstripped. So in order to protect ourselves, we're going back into protectionist policies. Well, guess what? Guess what happened to England when they did that? Guess what happened to France when they did that? Well, France is a little bit different. They, then they went into a revolution. And yeah, that, that's a, an extreme case. But England, when it was the world power, also the Dutch, don't forget them, uh, England, when it was a world power, and it just had the natural advantage because of its colonies, its coal production, and its industrialized base, well, they, they were really big advocates of free trade. And then as time went on and other countries started to eat their lunch, especially with German, Germany you know, being a little bit hostile and provoking uh, a few different tensions, there's no doubt about that, uh, they started having more protectionist policies. And guess what? Even though it protected them for maybe a little bit longer, it didn't actually encourage those firms to compete and actually get better, no. It just gave them a unnatural leg up due to the government. And then eventually... Britain was no longer the reserve currency of the world. They're still, they're still doing pretty okay. I mean, they, some of their people have a, a hard time financially. No doubt about that. They're still doing pretty okay, like I was talking about. But I feel like we are on that path towards destruction of the U.S. dollar. When we have the Fed so directly involved in controlling the currency, when we have this turn back to protectionism because we just can't compete on the world stage or because you know, they want to argue it's for national security purposes, but at the end of the day, we can't make those microchips as well as TSMC. So we're going to make a protectionist policy that protects the industry here and actually helps burgeon some more chip makers. Well, what happens when those subsidies and those protections go away and these chip makers are just left out in the cold? I, I don't know. My, my point is this is a very valid argument that needs to be had. We've seen this historically happen. Should we not fall? We shouldn't fall for the pit traps, but we probably will because the human mind span or the in the, the human species has a very short uh, attention span. They have a very short memory. 
And will we learn our lessons? Probably not, but one can hope, okay? So that, that's enough on that one. Uh, speaking of not learning lessons, this last one comes from Mother Jones, how Donald Trump and Jared Kushner overlooked the key to Middle East peace. So Donald Trump has been out there about the Abraham Accords ever since the Israel-Palestine uh, or Gaza-Hamas incident has started. He's been out there saying, oh, we had a huge peace deal. And of course, there have been critics on both sides, but Mother Jones takes a, I don't want to say a more tactful approach because they definitely don't like Trump, but they're definitely coming for his throat. But they definitely tried to break it down with a little bit more nuance than some people would rather than just say, oh, the Abraham Accords were a farce, blah, blah, blah. Some people have just outright said that. It's like, no, there, there was something there. Mother Jones admits that, but says, hey, they're, they're lacking in category B, C, and H. Uh, yeah, I just kind of chose some random letter there. Probably should have just said ABC. So let's jump to the first paragraph that comes from this article. On September 15th, 2020, President Donald Trump sitting next to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain on a White House balcony delivered a speech in which he declared they were changing the course of history, celebrating the signing of normalization agreements between Israel and these two Arab states, known as the Abraham Accords. Trump proclaimed, together this agreement will serve as the foundation for a comprehensive peace across the entire region, something which nobody thought was possible, certainly not in this day and age. In his remarks, Trump would never once mention the Palestinians. End quote. So if you can see where they're going here which is at the end of the day, the Arab states, the Israeli state, the American states, a.k.a. the United States, all ignored. They all ignored the Palestine issue. They decided, no, no, we don't need to worry about the Palestinians in order to get this peace deal signed, which, depending on where you're standing, could be 100% true. I mean, the West Bank is not necessarily the most stable thing in the world. It's kind of, it's under the... Palestinian authority, and they have some of their own issues, and then Gaza is basically ruled by Hamas. They also have some of their own issues. So are they legitimate governments? Yes and no. It's complicated. So why not just settle with the governments that are 100% solid footing and try to get things rolling that way? But Mother Jones is saying, no, 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 no. If you leave them out of it, if you leave out a Arab population right on your border that some would argue you are oppressing, which is Mother Jones' perspective. I've had conversations about this. Maybe they're not the most fair treated in the entire world, but is that solely Israel's fault? Not necessarily. Uh, sorry, I, I had a long conversation with somebody about this, and we didn't really get anywhere, but we at least had a cordial conversation. But Mother Jones' points is, is saying, hey, okay, you left out the Palestinians. How could you forget the Palestinians? And people that would counter-argue say, if the Palestinians wanted to have a peace agreement, they could have come and sat down at the table. They've had the opportunity multiple times. Now, does that mean that this time they uh, were totally invited and they denied it? No, no, they weren't invited. So that is also a fair point on Mother Jones's part. But it's it's just interesting, the framing. Uh, but I'm going to refrain from just making broad assumptions, and I'll give you one more quote from this Mother Jones article. You know how Mother Jones is. It's a little bit longer, so I would go read it yourself. Quote, after Trump departed the White House, Kushner and other Trump, it, other Trumpers insisted that Trump never received significant credit for the accords. Last September, at a ceremony marking the two-year anniversary of the agreement, which also came to 
includes Sudan, Kosovo, and Morocco. Kushner uh, griped that Trump derangement syndrome had prevented the Biden administration from recognizing this historic achievement of the Trump crew. Senator Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, called the Accords the most significant peace agreement of the 21st century, and history will always remember the pioneers of this peace deal. In March, speaking at a conference in Miami, Kushner again oversold the Accords. He claimed that they boosted stability in the Middle East and that Arabs and Muslims are now able to say nice things about Israel's, Israel and Jews, end quote. And while Mother Jones is taking a really critical approach here, I think he's right to some degree. There's a certain, if anything, it began the conversation. It started the normalization process. And that is extremely important in a region where tensions are so high. At least if you have the people or these different nations at the table, then and offering things to one another, it makes it harder to declare war. It makes it harder to walk away because at the end of the day, you feel like you're engaging and there's possibly something you can get out of it. That's just my opinion. And I'm not always, you know, I understand that there's a lot more history there than I am fully read up on. But it's just, it's something where they come at such come at it from such a critical angle that it, it does upset me. And it's like they don't want to give him any good credit whatsoever. All right, so our last article comes from Boing Boing. And this one is about a lovely, lovely dog who was rescued and then ended up getting taken to the beach. The headline reads, Watch excited rescue dog sheer joy when her new parents take her to the beach. So, obviously, everybody loves the beach. There's no doubt about that. But this greyhound loved the beach even more than most people or even kids. Quote, The new parents of a rescue greyhound knew their pup would be excited to run along the beach when they took her off the leash for the first time, but her utter exuberance took them by surprise. And honestly, this cute little video is phenomenal. It's got its little vest on as well. It took it off. It's straight jump, and I'm kind of narrating it, doing a little bit of a circle. Oh, coming back, coming back. And then she jumps on her owner, and then whew, she is sprinting through the sand. Yeah, I think that she was meant to be here, honestly. And she, honestly, she's a fast one as well. Well, with all that, if you want to check out any of these cute photos or videos or any of today's articles, you can check in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find them. Also down there is a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine, so you can download it when you're on the go. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die. <laughs>